Holy God, give us peace in this place and help us to hear you as we seek you in Scripture and in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are here in the midst of this uh, sermon series on facets of faithfulness. It is, of course, uh, rooted in this passage that is well known, um, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, Today we are looking at the theme of peace, the, um, the third in the first triad, love and joy and peace. And so um, the first scripture passage is actually from the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah, which I think points to the heart of peace for us as Christians. Um, And it is one that you will feel at home in, one that you have heard for year after year after year. It is a scripture passage that we hear on Christmas Eve. So listen now for God's love and God's peace spoken among us in this passage of Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And of course, our sermon series hinges on this passage from Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. The fruit of the Spirit comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Galatians are an immigrant community nestled into the powerful Roman Empire in what is now the heart of Turkey. The Galatians were ethnic Celts who traveled east through Europe 300 years before they met St. Paul to settle in a a city that they call Ansara, or we call Ankara. Turkey's capital. By the time that they learned about Jesus, the Galatians would have inherited generations of cultural assimilation from the Greeks and then the Romans, as well as probably picking up on some social norms from those seafaring cultures along the Mediterranean Sea. The Galatians may have once been unified under the umbrella of one ethnic identity, but 300 years or more on the Anatolian Peninsula left them polyvalent, multifaceted, like the many sides of a diamond, diverse, like any American immigrant community that has populated these shores for three centuries or more. 
Still, by the Roman conquerors, the Galatians were considered the other and looked down upon as barbarians. Romans would have considered the Galatians a people group to control, if not civilize. To to be perceived as the barbarian meant to be considered an outsider, not right, on the wrong side of civilization, maybe primitive or even backwards, unsophisticated for sure, unpolished, ill-mannered, etc. It's a title that makes you feel less than, without value, unworthy. Immigrant communities are resilient, though, as we know, and so when Paul arrives in the Galatian region, it's no surprise that they welcomed his gospel message of freedom that dismantled taboos and broke down social boundaries and dethroned human institutions that dehumanize people. The good news was good news for the Galatians. It meant welcome and freedom and dignity and full citizenship in the kingdom of God. For the Galatians, Jesus' message preached in the complex situation of the Roman Empire meant hope for the end of coercion and the freedom to rejoice, the possibility for unity and inclusion and an integrated life. The good news was good news for the Galatians. Have you ever been taken care of by a near stranger when you were sick? I'm not talking about that formal relationship that happens when you go to a hospital and hospital staff, it's their job to take care of you, even though you're a stranger to them. I'm talking more about the intimate hospitality that comes from someone who doesn't need to take care of you, but does it anyway. That feeling that your own physical ailment is a burden on someone that you hardly know, and yet there's nothing you can do to prevent your own body from falling apart. I'll never forget Deborah, who took care of my friend when she got sick on our trip to rural Kenya. I'm sure there are untold costs that I haven't even thought of because of the way that she cared for my friend and for all of us, really. She fed us. She checked in on us in those three days when we were all worried, would my friend start to get better? We asked, would we need to travel eight hours to the nearest hospital? Would we be able to take her to the local healer? We were worried, and Deborah took care of us. She was a near stranger, and she took on that intimate hospitality, taking care of someone that wasn't their own. And on a smaller scale, I remember the time when I had a fever and was shivering uncontrollably on a church camping trip in 40-degree pouring rain, and one of our students, Sam, offered me his only pair of dry socks. It might have felt like him a small sacrifice, but for me, it let me sleep through the night. It was a true symbol of generosity. As for the Galatians, St. Paul was far from home and fell ill while he was traveling through Galatia. Paul writes in chapter 4 of Galatians that though he was a stranger to them, they offered him undue hospitality. Paul writes, 
you took care of me such that you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me if it would have made a difference. That is the kind of care reserved for a mother taking care of a sick child or a child caring for a sick parent, an intimate, eager, sacrificial, all-night kind of care. Paul remembers everything that was humbling about being taken care of by these strangers, and he knew they would have done anything to make sure that he was well again. So it's in this context, one of profoundly personal connection because of the way the Galatians cared for Paul when he was sick, and the Galatians' deep-seated hope for inclusion and restoration in the Roman Empire rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ, that St. Paul offers this gift of the fruits of the Spirit to us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We're at the end of this fruity triad, love, joy, peace, and today we look at peace, and every time that I am tasked with studying peace, I get bogged down by the complexity of something that should be so simple in this world. I wonder, does peace begin with me like the sages say, or is there something communal, social, political, international about peace? Maybe peace weaves its way in concentric circles, webbing, a, webbing its way out from the personal to the family to the neighborhood to the city to the nation to the world and back in again from global to national to local to personal. When I think of peace, I think of places like Darfur and Vietnam and Rwanda and the Korean Peninsula and our own borders. When I think of peace, I think of individuals like Mother Teresa and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and the Dalai Lama and Malala. I think of intimate places where peace might preside, but doesn't. Domestic violence, child abuse, psychological trauma. I think of the ways that peace symbols surround us, those peace bumper stickers or peace signs or peace doves or long strands of carefully folded paper cranes. Even that little peace hand emoji blinking up from my cell phone. We surround ourselves with symbols of peace. I think of organizations like Doctors Without Borders or Amnesty International or the Red Cross, organizations like those that have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Peace makes me remember individuals who are lost within systems of suffering, POWs, people who get caught in the system of mass incarceration, World War I trench warfare victims, or those photos from the newspapers after the bomb dropped in Hiroshima. I think of groups who have tried to organize the world to be more peaceful, nonviolent sit-ins and protests, Quakers who resist cooperating with the draft, monks and religious orders that live life tucked away from the violence of this world. And I think the context of Galatians help, helps us to set the scene about what peace might look like. Because peace does hold that personal dimension and the social one. Peace at once holds the vulnerability of being sick when you are far from home. And the systemic social and cultural legacy 
of generations of Galatians being considered barbarian by the dominant culture. Peace hopes for change now the way you do when someone you love is sick or suffering. And peace hopes for change over the long haul the way you do when people long for the systems of injustice in this world to change for the better. In August 1945, when the A-bomb was dropped on the city of Hiroshima, Sadaku Saki was two years old. Like so many of the children who grew up in the aftermath of the atomic bomb, such a large-scale violent event at such an early age was elusive and mysterious for her. A lingering chaos that caused rippling harm, but it was all that she knew. Nearly 10 years after the atomic bomb, the otherwise growing and healthy Sadaku became sick with radiation-induced leukemia. She was a joyful almost 12-year-old who did not want other people to know that she knew that she was dying. The kind of girl who, knowing that her life was short, wanted to spread that triad of love and joy and peace to others as much as possible. While she was in the hospital, Sadaku was, giving, was given, a, gifted, a string of paper cranes, a gift from anonymous school children sent to the hospital wing that treated children with radiation disease. It's the kind of act of generosity that is the simple kind of thing that our middle schoolers do. They send notes to people who survived a tornado in northern Illinois or a school shooting in Florida. It wasn't a new concept to Sadako. Her mother had folded a huge paper crane and, and hung it above her crib as a child. But long days in the hospital require some thrust of activity that keeps you motivated and hopeful. And so when she received this gift of a string of paper cranes, she turned to her sister, Kiyo, and said, these are beautiful, let's make some as if to symbolize their grief mingled with hope, the paper cranes began to multiply. First a few, and then 50 strung together, and then hundreds. Sadako remembered reading in a girl's magazine, if you make a thousand cranes, it said, you will get well. So soon there were a thousand cranes, and then more and more paper cranes. Sadaku Saki died nine months after entering the hospital. And her classmates were devastated. Together, they crafted a letter to other local schools in their city. And it said, our friend Sadaku died on October 25th, and we were devastated, they wrote. But what can we do? But we can do nothing now about her death. What can we do? Let's build a statue to the children of the A-bomb, they wrote to console the spirits of the children. They printed 2,000 copies, and ultimately, with the work of over 3,000 junior, um, 3, junior high schools in Japan and some in England and elsewhere, the work on the statue began. Maybe you've been there in Japan, many have. Maybe you folded paper cranes that have been sent there. Many have. Thousands of paper cranes from every corner of the globe are sent there to this day. And at the foot of the statue, an inscription reads, this is our cry, this is our prayer 
for building peace in this world. Sadaku Saki represents the forgotten voices of children, the most vulnerable who struggle to cope with the adult world of violence seeping into their own. Paper cranes, again, highlight that tension, right, between uh, the, the communal and the personal, that individual and social aspect of peace. Sadaku's suffering and the suffering of untold children help us to see that. The individual's suffering as a result of war and that constant need for international negotiations around nuclear weapons or care for children in times of relative peace. It's hard to figure out what peace means for any of us these days, and so sometimes a turn to history helps. In the era of the Reformation, for example, during a time of equally dense social disruption and religious unrest, there were three dominant understandings of Jesus' call for peace. The most radical and the most violent was from Munzer, who believed that suffering for Christ was the holiest form of faithfulness to God. Maybe it's the same kind of message preached today to jihadists, that such violent sacrifice leads to union with God. It's the kind of radical message that makes us confront the fact that holy scriptures contain messages of violence. Munzer used his central rallying, used as his central rallying cry a text from the Gospel of Matthew, which reads, Jesus said, I do not, I do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's a challenging message tucked within a gospel that we want to preach as one of peace. And not unlike the violent religious messages that spread via social media today, it was a message that spread swiftly because of the new printing press that spread messages of violence across Europe. On the opposite side were radical peace groups like Quakers and Anabaptists who understood the full cost of discipleship to mean resisting violence at all costs. We have a Quaker window here at Kenilworth Union Church. Similar to the nonviolent protests of the 1960s in which civil rights demonstrators sought to resist violence, even when being beaten themselves, Quakers and other Christian pacifists from the Reformation era yielded all power over to God made known in Jesus Christ, who they claimed, like Isaiah, to be the Prince of Peace. And of course, there was a middle way, too, between radical violence and radical peace. It was that of Luther, also here among our windows, a Lutheran window, who argued that on occasion Christians might be called to war or violent action as part of their civic duty, and that as long as the government was participating only in what he calls just war, then Christians are obligated to participate as an indication of their responsibility as a citizen of that government. They would not be participating as Christians per se. This was not holy war writ large with Christians marching off wearing the cross of Christ on their armor. This was just war, rooted in Augustine's claim that peace is not sought in order to kindle war, 
but war is waged in order to obtain peace. You would find this same wide diversity and wider still among Christians today asking the question, what is peace? And maybe more importantly, asking, what is my role in this violent world that longs for peace? The vision placed at our feet on, Christ on Christmas Eve is that of Christ, who is Prince of Peace, vulnerable child who is cared for by mother and stranger alike, wise men and shepherds, so many visiting the manger. It is on that night that we read today's passage from Isaiah where we hear these words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Within this text in Isaiah, the vision is of joy and harvest, abundance and enemies retreating, relief from burdens and trappings of war being cast off and burned, never to be used again. The hope is that someone will come who will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And I think that reign of peace is something God really does call us to. It's a peace that really can start with you, with me, with us. It's a peace that asks us, where are the places where burdens need to be shared? What are the heavy loads that need to be abandoned? What meal can we share? What song of joy can we sing together? What light can be brought to places that are hidden in inky shadow? What stranger can we care for when he is sick and far from home? What letter can we send to 2,000 people seeking help in this work of peace? What person can we include and get to know who otherwise would be marginalized at great cost? For the last 30 years, the Chicago Tribune has published on Christmas Eve the following editorial. It says, What is this day, this Christmas, that dawns with a chorus of joy? What river of love and magic speeds the message from the moment of wonder in Bethlehem across the cold darkness of centuries long forgotten? How does this Christmas morning warm us as we awaken in a world the wise men could scarcely imagine to a radiance that once each year makes it just a little bit better. It doesn't have to be just once a year, does it? The article goes on to claim a fervent hope that the elusive gift of peace will not slip from our grasp. What a vivid image. We don't have to let the gift of peace remain elusive. It can become tangible, visible, here today. It doesn't have to be hard to hold. We can do it together. Virginia Woolf says you cannot find peace by avoiding life. Lyndon Johnson says peace is a journey of a thousand miles and it must be taken one step at a time. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nobody can bring peace but yourself. And a theologian, John Kimball, reminds us that peace is the first thing the angels sang. 
on Christmas Eve. It's not difficult to place Jesus at the center of the fruits of the Spirit, even just this first triad of fruit. Jesus is love in human form, the one for whom we sing joy to the world, and our Prince of Peace. So may the Prince of Peace begin to rule anew in you. Amen.